This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. This past weekend, I was in St. Louis to be one of five jurors for this September's St. Louis Art Fair. The festival received 814 applications from artists across 46 states and four countries, and our task was to choose just 135 of them. It was a near impossible task, as all of the artists were working at an incredibly high quality, and yet we had to say no to almost 700 of them. The five jurors, we all came from different backgrounds and art experiences, and somehow, after 30 hours of jurying over three and a half days, we managed to find consensus and select the artists for the festival. To reach that consensus, we each had to relinquish artists that we were strongly in favour of inviting, but we made it. It was exhausting, but also exhilarating to spend the weekend looking at such an incredible array of beautifully crafted and created artworks. This year's St. Louis Art Fair will take place from September the 9th through 11th in Clayton in St. Louis, and it is always a spectacular art show. Plus, there's music, including, I found out this weekend, Columbia's very own Bernie Sisters. The upshot of being away all weekend means that for this week's Speaking of the Arts, we are going to revisit a couple of recent chats, a play that opens this weekend at Columbia Entertainment Company and a singer-songwriter who will be playing a gig at Cooper's Landing this weekend. So if we're all sitting comfortably, let's head out. There was much excitement in the local theatre world when Columbia Entertainment Company announced that its 2020 season would include the play August Osage County, a 2008 Pulitzer Prize and Tony Award-winning play by actor and playwright Tracy Letts. The cast was already in place when along came the pandemic and everything had to be indefinitely postponed. There was a faint hope of resurrection in 2021, but with a cast of 13 people and the pandemic continuing to ebb and flow, Columbia Entertainment Company made the wise decision to postpone it a while longer. In the meantime, some of the original cast had to drop out and there was a recasting of those roles and many fingers were crossed that maybe 2022 would bring enough pandemic respite that the show could go on. And now it is, still with its original director, Angela Howard, in charge of the production and still with a stellar who's who of the Columbia theatre scene on the stage. And so... Two years later than originally planned, I am thrilled to finally chat with Angela Howard and actor Dee Dee Farris about Columbia Entertainment Company's production of August Osage County. Hello, Angela and Dee Dee. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having us. It feels like this production and also several over at Talking Horse Productions have a storied history at this point with multiple date and cast changes, a 24-month ride of a show being on, then it being off, then it being tentatively on, (laughs) then off again. (laughs) Angela, how optimistic have you been over the last two years that August Osage County would ever actually happen? Oh, my goodness. Very optimistic. 
but cautious. <laughs> I, I've, I really felt like they were going to bring it back, though. They knew that it was going to be a good show based on the cast that we got originally. I mean, we were we had lines learned. We had prop spot. <laughs> we had half a set made. And it was just so sad because we finally were like, we can do this. We can do this. And then somebody said, um, you may not have an audience. And then it was like, <laughs> oh, you're right. <laughs> if we don't sell tickets, you know. So I, I was so pleased. I mean, this was one of the best things that could have happened. I'm, I'm sorry that we lost some of the cast members we lost, but the ones that we gained are wonderful. And it's just a great cast. It's a great crew. I'm excited about it. I really am. Well, of course, what it does mean for you is that you've had two extra years to think about <laughs> how you might want to direct the play. And I'm curious whether this time lag has given you any aha moments or new insights about how you want your production to be. Absolutely. It changed the set was the big thing. When I applied to direct this and I came in for my director interview, I brought a Lego set um, <laughs> with my children's Legos. And I showed them and I said that at the very beginning, I said, this is going to have a very large set. And they knew that. So they were prepared for it. And we have had a wonderful master carpenter. Chris Bowling has just been amazing with getting this thing done. But that was probably the biggest thing. This script has a prologue and three acts. And so the second act, which we are combining into the first act, is the entirety of the dinner scene that takes place right in the middle of the stage. Originally, I had had it on stage right, and I was really glad to be able to look at it because when it looks it looks good in your head, and then you see it up there, and you're like, oh, I don't like the way that looks. <laughs> and so I moved it to the center. I want this to come across as if you were sitting outside somebody's window and looking in. So everything about it, in terms of the set itself, changed. But past that, we've stuck with most everything. Didi can let me know if I'm missing something. But other than that, uh, we've kept a lot of the same things. It is pretty true. The play centers around an incredibly dysfunctional family who gather in their Osage County, Oklahoma estate following the disappearance of the father of the family. And the matriarch, Violet, has mouth cancer, suffers from depression and addiction to painkillers, was abused as a child and has no problem being viciously truthful to her three daughters. Adding her own flavor of cruelty to the soup of chaos is Violet's sister, Matty Faye, plus Plus, there's a host of husbands and children, all tarnished by not only the family's toxicity, but also harbouring their own deep and unpleasant secrets. And yet, despite the many horrors and viciousness, it has moments of a very dark comedy, but there's always tragedy kind of shot through in the background. Mm -hmm. Angela, talk to me a little bit about directing a play that is a balancing act between moments of dark humor where you expect the audience to laugh and moments of toxicity where you expect the audience to take a sharp intake of breath. What is your vision for the production and how you manage all of that? You know, it's funny um, because I was going to say, nailed it, you nailed it. Um, Tracy Letts has done an amazing job with the script. In fact, there is apparently 
he told Meryl Streep that after he wrote the play, he showed it to his mother because he wrote it about his grandmother. And mm-hmm. his mother's response was, you were too nice. So um, <laughs> it, it, there is like these awful moments in it, just, you know, horrible things you hear. And yet he peppers it constantly with these little side digs that you just can't help but laugh. It's, thank goodness you have that levity in there because otherwise your audience would get like, I don't think I want to stay for act two because mm. it would just be too dark. But it's that idea that sometimes we have to laugh in our tragedies because otherwise what would happen to us? We would go down that deep, dark hole that we don't want to be part of. And there's just so many great moments. And the other piece of that has a lot to do with the actors. I have an incredible cast. They have found those moments and you can hear it when they deliver the lines where it just strikes you and you're suddenly laughing and and you're thinking, oh, should I be laughing at this point? That's really funny, you know? So... So we do. And we are allowing that as much as possible because we have to have it. It's just too dark of a show otherwise. Dee Dee, somebody somewhere had described the play as an acting cornucopia and that the author himself, an actor, is an actor's playwright because there are so many hugely meaty roles in the play. What makes this play particularly desirable to you? Oh, for me... First of all, I think that person nailed it. Um, Tracy Letts wrote us a beautiful script, and every character has some beauty and roundedness to them that is so interesting to play as an actor. What appealed to me was I'm playing Barbara, the eldest of the daughters, and she is, I think her husband describes her best at one point. He tells her that she's warm and funny, but stern. And um, he, he says it a in such, a, such a pain in the butt, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I and I think that that is the, the beauty of playing Barbara for me. She is a woman who has tried so, so hard to make this beautiful life after coming from, you know, many generations of trauma and having lived through some real difficulties with her parents and and their addictions. And yet she has moved away. She has tried to create this very beautiful life. And as anyone who's experienced this in their family knows, it takes a heartbeat to get right back to where you started. Right. Were there any other roles you would have taken in this play, Didi, or was it Barbara or Bust? Honestly, I think any of the women's characters are, I mean, age-wise, I can only play a few of them. But um, (laughs) I think they're all beautifully written. In fact, my husband and I, my husband's also in the play. He plays Barbara's husband, um, interestingly. Mm. He is enamored of the character of Charlie, who he is not playing. It's an older, bit of an older character. And we joke that someday we'd love to play Charlie and Maddie Faye, who... (laughs) (laughs) Because Maddie Faye is probably the biggest source of comic relief in the whole play. Just the way that that she is written is very, very funny. 
And the way that Nora Dietzel is playing her, as you know, is just outrageously hilarious because Nora is such a talented comedic actress. And then Charlie is just the sweet warmth, you know, in Mm. the play. There are a couple of characters like that who seem the least touched by what's gone on and have maintained the sweetness in them that you just can't help but be drawn to and yet are are also very funny and have their moments. So you are one of three daughters locked into this multi-generational collection of neuroses and emotional malaise. Tell us a little bit about your two sisters. So there's you, Barbara. You are married, but things are not going great. You moved away to Colorado. And then you have two sisters, Ivy and Karen. Tell us a little bit about them. Each of these sisters has dealt with their family in different ways. Barbara got away and and dove into family and work. And Karen ran away and dove into things that are unnamed, mostly, and yet hinge on, on some darkness, hint to some darkness that she's been through in her life. And yet she's newly in love. And she comes back with all this beauty and hope. And um, she just wants to be close to her family again, because she finally feels happy and sorted and feels like this is an opportunity, you know, to reconnect in a beautiful way. Poor thing. And <laughs> <laughs> and then there's Ivy. And Ivy is the one who stayed Ivy is the one who has taken care of her parents. She as well has a career in her own home. She does not live in the home with her parents, but she has been the one who day to day has stayed and and cared for her parents through their different times that they've had. And so she has her finger on the pulse. And it's very interesting to see Ivy's journey in this. Mm. So uh, that's a beautiful character. Gosh, that is just so well-written and lovely. The play is a hugely emotional roller coaster for the audience as each of the characters is so layered one minute they're loving then that peels away and there's anger and then there's tenderness and then there's sadness and there's more yelling and then there's mm-hmm. compassion and there's more love and, <laughs> so, and there's violence <laughs> there's violence <laughs> and so most of the actors need to portray this huge dynamic emotional range so Angela for you it's almost I imagine you like a conductor swelling and dampening the emotions of this you know pretty huge cast your director's job in this play is much more than saying okay come in stage left and stand in front of the dresser I mean talk to me about conducting this Mm -hmm. ensemble and those those waves of emotion one of the first things that I did with them in our first set of rehearsals is we did some table reads where I really broke down characters and talked about a lot of the things that Didi was just talking about of what is their motivation. And I had to break down my, my script so that I could see where there was going to be a new unit within the script. You'll see that when you actually see the show, it's like, there's like these flips into new conversations and it's constant where it's just this back and forth and back and forth. And especially with the character of Violet, because she is so much in charge of everything that's happening and yet she isn't. And I actually even last night was sitting with Alana Brannigan Scott is the one who is doing Violet. And she and I were talking about this arc that Violet is on. And 
without giving away too much. I mean, she has put money in front of her husband's salvation and she keeps talking about it. She keeps talking about this, this safety deposit box and, and we had nothing. And, and you hear her stories and you look at what's going on with her. And yet you realize in many ways, Violet is a very static character. The people who are the dynamic characters are all the ones that leave and they all leave. And in fact, the way that I've designed this is that there will be very few blackouts. The actors will actually still stay on the stage during the intermission. I wanted it to feel like the House of Usher. I wanted it to feel like when they came in, once they left, they would never come back, that the audience would know that, that this was their escape, that they had to get out of this house because without it, they wouldn't ever be able to be truly free. And I made a comment the other night that it's like, you almost feel like you want little fires to start showing up on each edge of the stage. And then the house just collapses down because the only people that are left are Violet and Jonna. And Jonna is the person who was hired to come in and take care. And she's the only seriously sane person in this, this whole tragedy that is going on. And so that was a big part of it. I wanted the house to also feel like it was part of the of the characters and what was going on so that the audience would also feel that claustrophobic, hot, conflicting, where they, they're just stuck. They have to leave in order to be free. I want to ask you about one particular scene without giving anything to, too much away. It's a fight scene mm-hmm. that erupts suddenly and violently between two of the women. And all I will say is that Dee Dee, your character, Barbara, is one of them. <laughs> Dee Dee, talk me through that because it's so intense. Mm. I mean, it's been building and building, but it is such a hugely climactic moment of the play. Talk me through how it feels for you to be in that moment, kind of losing yourself into this character. I love this. Um, The thing about these staged fights is that to keep everyone safe, they actually are tremendously choreographed. And so anyone who's done any sort of stage fighting realizes you know exactly what's going to happen and when we do. And our job is to make it look like it just, you know, blew up out of nowhere and that it's total chaos. I love that part of it. As someone who used to dance a lot, I love the choreography of it. The trick then as an actor is to allow yourself to seem unhinged while being very much in control. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I find it difficult in some ways because it's difficult subject matter. And I find it cathartic in some ways because even though as a person I don't want to ever scream in someone's face, to really get in someone's face and scream at them feels weirdly good in a way sometimes <laughs> because she knows I don't mean anything by it and I know I don't mean anything by it but uh, you know when done well it comes across very effectively to the audience and so I always kind of relish these moments of such juxtaposition you know where you're so controlled but so out of control and doing something that is so against your type but that's the beauty of it right mm-hmm When you have a character that is so intense like that, you as an actor, how long does it take you to 
And how do you release them at the end of the play so that you can get in the car with your husband who's been <laughs> in the same play as you and just be normal and not be snapping at him and not still be in that moment? Is it easy for you to separate you from the actor or does it, does it take a while to dissipate? I think it's a little bit of both and it kind of depends on where you've been that day already. You know what I mean? Like what the day has held for you. I have certainly played some very dark dramas and and roles and some of them are harder to shake off than others. Someone who's having bursts of anger and resentment like Barbara is, that's easy enough to shake off because it really isn't close to how my mind works generally. I'm not a vengeful person. I don't tend to hold on to grudges very much. So that part is is relatively easy to drop. I, I have had other roles, though, where the deeper thought processes of the character are, are too similar to my own that um, at the end of the play, I'm just so ready to be rid of them because they're just in my brain too hard. <laughs> <laughs> but Barbara has been relatively easy. I, I find her mostly cathartic to play. Angela, I'm curious, this play is such a huge following in the theatre community because of the complexity of its characters, but why did you want to direct it rather than be in it? Oh, oh, that's a good question, because I really would have loved to have been in it. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I would have wanted to play Violet because, yeah. Um, you know, when I pick things that I want to direct, it usually has to do with whether it is a really solidly well-written script, especially something such as this, a drama like this. You know, musicals, I enjoy doing musicals, but boy, give me a good meaty drama that I can honestly, you know, without sounding like I'm being too cliche, sink my teeth into. And I, I was just thinking, listening to Didi talk, he's like, I knew that Didi was going to be my Barbara. I just knew it. From everything that I've seen her do, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, so when you already know within the community that you have the talent pool, that's when it's like, yep, this is a show that can work and it's going to work because these people are just so amazing. They're strong. They come in. I watch them. And it's it's kind of funny in a way because you would probably think, oh, you know, she's got to be watching all their... I'm at this point now, their acting is so good. I'm like, where am I going to put that furniture? Um, okay, I need a sound cue here. You know, it's like my brain is going in that direction because I have the production end of it because I can count on these people. I know that when they come in, they're going to give it everything. And they have. And it's just, it's like you're watching this community theater where you're realizing that this is as good as anything I've seen regionally in terms of the talent level of these people. And, and so that makes it a joy, uh, even as dark and creepy. And there's a lot of stuff in here. Uh, like Didi was talking about the, the fight choreography. We're so fortunate. Dana Baki is playing Ivy, but she also knows fight choreography and she just knows how to do it. And I turn it over to her. Okay. Tell me what you need my actors to do. And it's, it's just seamless. And, it always amazes me when people come in with those extra talents that you're so happy you've got. Which role was the most difficult to cast, would you say? Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. Um, I would honestly say Violet. Violet is a, 
she's, like I said, she's a very static character. And so you have to find somebody who can give that consistency to it. And someone who is not afraid to, to try. I mean, this is a woman who is an addict. She doesn't always even talk clearly. And some people get really uncomfortable with those kinds of feelings, even as actors, it's difficult for them to bring that. But Alana does it. And oh my gosh, she's doing just a fabulous job with it. Alana is brilliant. She's absolutely yeah. brilliant in this. And I, when I watch her, I'm just in awe. I think I don't know that I could play Violet. She's so difficult to play. Mm-hmm. Um, the words are so, even just memorizing it would be so tremendously difficult. And and I had never done a lot with Alana on stage, but I have to say being with her is so very comfortable. But I just watch her and it's impossible not to let my mouth drop sometimes. She's so freaking good at this role. <laughs> yeah, she is. She is. And everybody is. I mean... I find myself just staring at different actors at different times on the stage going, wow, they really got this. And we've only been at it for three weeks. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's been two years, Angela. It's been two years. (laughs) I know. But I mean, in terms of really coming back and, and when you think about it, it's like you're coming back into a situation where you have new actors and you're hoping, will they be able to bring that same level? And they have and more. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm just so very thrilled with the people that we have. I, I just think that the community is going to be like floored when they see their performances. The movie is two hours long. And I read somewhere that the play is close to three hours. <laughs> is that correct? Yes, it, it is. is. <laughs> I have to say, I, I saw the movie. When I first watched the movie, I didn't know the play. When the movie first came out, I was like, oh, okay, I'll watch it. I mean, it had Meryl in it, for goodness sake. Come on. Um, you're going to watch it. And I turned it off during the dinner scene. I was like, I can't watch these people abuse each other. This is too hard. I don't like it. Um, and I really didn't consider this show again in any capacity other than, you know, eventually learning it was a play. I saw it in a regional production in Cincinnati. And it was, I mean, I I had to pick my job off the floor And this will tell you something. After the big dinner scene that ends in that huge fight, we had our second intermission at that point. um, And there were people who were just sitting there sobbing. Yes. Sobbing. And I thought, these are people who've lived through dinners like this, you know. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, And in some ways that sounds terrible. But in other ways, this is real life, you know. There are families for whom this is the way they function. And um, it's very interesting to bring that to life. Well, Columbia Entertainment Company's production of August Osage County opens on Thursday, April the 7th and runs for three weekends. There are a lot of adult themes in this show and a lot of language that may not be suitable for all members of the family. So I'm guessing it is a adult only Yes, it is. It's definitely R-rated. There's language. There's everything that they list on the movies, violence, alcohol, smoking, the whole bit. Yeah, yeah, it's all there. Bit of everything. (laughs) 
Evening performances start at 7.30 plus is a 2pm Sunday afternoon matinee on the first and third weekends, but not on April the 17th, as that is Easter Sunday. For more information, go to cectheatre.org and Angela Howard and Didi Farris. Thank you for making time to chat and giving us a peek behind the curtain. And I cannot wait to come and see it. Thank you so much, Diana. I can't wait for you to come see it too. (laughs) Thank you. When I was in my early teens, I'd watch pop stars on the telly who were just a few years older than me. And I'd think that the bravery to get on stage and realize your dreams was for older people older than me. And now I am old and I look at younger people and I think that the bravery to get on stage and realize your dreams must be for younger people. And yet there are so many people in my life who prove to me time and time again that you should just go for your dreams whenever you want. Join an improv group with no acting experience. Kudos to Stacey Pottinger. Audition for a play when you haven't done anything for decades. Kudos to David McSpadden and Jim Maloney and many friends. Or like my next guest, pick up your guitar after a 20-year hiatus, go to Nashville and start a singer-songwriting career. And what a delight it is to welcome Meredith Shaw to Speaking of the Arts. Hello, Meredith. Hello. Thank you. That was a wonderful introduction. Wow. I'm not sure I'm worthy of that. That's some great company to be in. I'm like, I love Stacy and Jim and David. Those are all wonderful people. So... Yeah, you are definitely worthy to be in that group. And I cannot tell you how much I love that after raising children, working full time, starting a doctoral degree, you thought, oh, you know what? I think I just throw my hat into the Nashville ring and see what happens. Was there a moment in time when you made that decision? And if so, what prompted it? Well, there were quite a few things that happened. I mean, part of it was COVID, right? So there was there was that whole pandemic thing. And so I was home writing some things. Um, there was also a change in life relationships and some some big changes there. Kind of at the beginning of 2020, like my goal for 2020 was just to go to Nashville and play my guitar in a parking lot <laughs> to say to say I'd played in Nashville. Like, <laughs> That was my goal was like, I'm at the end of my 40s. I'm going, you know, I've never played in Nashville. I want to at least say that I played in Nashville. And that was kind of my goal going into 2020. And then I had a whole lot of stuff happen over the course of the year. My husband left. I ended up getting divorced. Uh, You know, some big life changes. And, you know, I had an opportunity to go to Nashville, record some music, had an opportunity to go back to Nashville and start playing down there. And so just a lot of like, yeah, some big life changes where I went, here's a whole new chapter of life. I guess if I'm going to do things, now is the time. So that's kind of what prompted all of this. What was the opportunity? I mean, what did arise out of the blue at a perfect time? Out of the blue, well, I was, so I was starting to play music around Columbia. And that was, I think it was 2018, just doing some open mics and having some really great encouragement locally to start writing again and playing and getting my feet wet here and having some great encouragement at local open mics and then being invited to do Ramblers Club, which is another great songwriter venue. And so I was starting to do more and more around Columbia. And then there was this like weird lockdown, (laughs) this weird thing that happened to all of us. And uh, I put together, I had a a friend 
Caleb, who was my guitar instructor, I'd started taking it like I wanted to get better, right? You start doing more and you start realizing like the more you do, the more you realize, the more you don't know. It's like, I need to get better. I need to, I want to do more. So I need to get better. So I started taking guitar classes um, from Caleb Alexander. So he encouraged me to put together, he's like, you're starting to play gigs. People want you to play gigs. You need to put together an artist page. I'm like, okay. So I did that on Facebook and I felt really weird about that. <laughs> like, oh, not like, like you said, putting yourself out there for people to judge is really intimidating and scary. And then, you know, you have friends who like your page and you're like, wow, that's so big and scary. And then just through the course of the pandemic, I started writing some new songs and I wrote a song, Whiskey Situation, and just made a video at my house and put it out there. And it's it's kind of about, you know, it was it was in April, like right after the pandemic had started. And the whole idea of the song is kind of this weird, like being at home, drinking by yourself with all your friends. Like we're in this weird thing, trying to do this alone together. We don't know what's happening. And that's kind of the crux of the song. And I put this video out and got 12,000 views in a weekend. Wow. You know, which is Awesome, but also for someone like me, very anxiety producing like, oh no, what's what's happening? Um, and had a lot of, of local people reaching out going, hey, let's co-write. Hey, you should come to my studio and record this. Which again, terrific, but also for someone like me, some creative types, it's, you know, a lot of anxiety. Oh, what am I'm gonna do something wrong? I don't know how to maneuver you know, this is starting to feel businessy. I don't know anything about music business. And so I reached out to an old friend, someone I'd grown up with who works as a producer in Nashville, because I thought he actually will know like the nuts and bolts of what I should do for something like this. And so I reached out to him and it was more like just, you know, what do I need to do for a song such as this. And he, you know, his advice was join BMI or ASCAP. That's all you need to do to protect a song. Huh. Okay. You know, you don't need to get a patent. You don't have to go get a copyright. That's all you have to do. And at the end of the conversation, I said, Hey, David, have you listened to the song? And he's a very, he's just the nicest guy. Like he always was just the nicest person. And this is a producer who worked with Katy Perry before she became a pop star. Like she used to do contemporary Christian music. He produced her then. He worked with Diane Warren. He's worked with a lot of people, right? And But he's also just the nicest guy. And he was like, oh, yeah, send send it to me. I'd love to listen to it. And then later that night, I started feeling bad because of anxiety. And, and so I sent him another message and said, you know, David, you know, please know I'm not pitching you a song. I'm just a whore for attention. <laughs> like, I just, I just want you to pat me on the head and tell me that I did a good job. And that was fully what I was expecting was, you know, he's a really nice guy that he would say, oh, I'm glad to hear you're still doing music, you know, keep it up. That's what I'm expecting out of my friend David. What I get back the next day at like five in the morning is this very long message that he's listened to the song. He didn't know that I could write like that. He didn't know that I could sing anymore. Like he knew me in high school. He knew I could sing community theater stuff. And... Basically, through the crux of, like, several Facebook messages back and forth, it was, if you're going to record this song, I would like first shot 
would you come to Nashville and come record this? And I was uh, a little blown away. Took me a while to uh, believe it. You know, I was, some of my messages were, I just woke up. Is this, am I still dreaming? Did I die? Is it April the 1st? Yeah. Is is this, are you messing with me? Also, is this going to cost me my house to do? Because I know I have to pay you to produce. But, you know, he was very positive and kind and like, oh, there's still work to do on it. But I would really like for a shot at this. And so I figured out a way to do that and went and recorded Whiskey Situation and went into it fully thinking this is the experience of a lifetime, mm. right? Like driving down there, going into it like this is the vacation of my dreams. I have a cool Airbnb in East Nashville. Like I'm spending a week in Nashville by myself. This is my dream. Like this is the giant bucket list thing. I had a tattoo scheduled that was kind of to commemorate the recording of the music. If nothing else ever happens, if this is all that ever happens for me, this is better than anything I ever thought was going to happen. Um, And it was, it was like a phenomenal week. I got down there, having a producer at that caliber, I walk in, he already has the whole song plotted out. He's already imagined and already knows what the final product will sound like in his head. And so that was, that was amazing to me. Um, Cause I was like, what are you talking about? Then it breaks into three part harmony and all this <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, Oh no, we'll, we'll get there. You'll, you'll understand. So that all sounds amazing. I mean, you, you're in Nashville, you've got a producer, he's producing a record. What does that mean in practical terms? Does it mean that you end up making some money? Does it mean that it's pressed onto a CD? Does it mean that suddenly other people are calling you? Like, what's the onward journey from that amazing point? Really, it just means you're one of thousands and thousands of people in Nashville who are trying to get heard, right? So it's still, you're still just a little fish in a big pond down there, but now you have a shinier product. Um, and someone who's, you know, he's got some connections, so he's trying to push it out there as well. But but he also, we're also very realistic about it, right? There are 60,000 songs a day uploaded to Spotify. So it's it's very hard to get any traction with that. So it's about that trying to be realistic. It's it's having someone like him, though, who's on the ground in Nashville all the time who can try to shop it around because he's got a vested interest. As a producer, he and I are now co-writers, so I've, I've went back. He and I have written some stuff. I've recorded more things. I've went down and played writer's rounds and, and met more people in Nashville and and trying to, you know, trying to become part of that community as well as the terrific performing community in Columbia and mid-Missouri, trying to become part of the community that's in Nashville, also trying to beat the streets down there and trying to meet more people. So, Well, tell us a little bit about this idea, these writer's rounds, because most of us will never uh, try the hand on the Nashville scene. We don't have the bravery that you have or the skills. So you turn up in Nashville and you have a song or you're a songwriter and have multiple songs. What are writer's rounds? How do they work? So writer's rounds are nights at bars where 
basically usually from six to ten every hour three or four different songwriters get up there and do their original material most people when they go to nashville they're downtown broadway where it's it's loud and it's starting to sound more like new orleans and it's like these big bands are playing it's very different than what maybe nashville used to be but if you get a little farther out the smaller bars that are featuring songwriters and you think a lot of people know about the bluebird the bluebird is very hard to get into now, but all the other bars really kind of rely on free talent, essentially, like free songwriters who come in and just are playing their original songs every night from 6 to 10, 6 to midnight, and three or four different songwriters every hour, and you get scheduled in, and it's really just, you know, one person... And I knew one person, Aaron Shelb, who's actually from Columbia. And so um, J.T. Schneckenberg connected me with Aaron, right? So it's all these great connections. It's all this networking. Aaron put me on one round, and then he put me on another round later in the month. I spent a whole month down there in October of 2020. Once he met me and once he saw what I could do, he's like, oh, you know, you're great. We're great friends now. And, and then it's kind of that whole networking thing. Once I met some other people that ran some of the other rounds, they invited me to play some of the other, you know, rounds at a different bar that they ran. But where does this all end? I mean, you're playing rounds in bars. I mean, if the bars are full of people like me, that's not going to do you any good at all because I have no way to help you. But I mean, who are you hoping is going to be there? You're hoping, you know, sometimes producers show up. You're also just trying to get better. You're trying to meet other songwriters to write with. You know, you're trying to write that great song that gets noticed. And part of it is you start developing a following at some of these bars. And so then you move on to some of the bigger bars that get a a little bit more attention. So it's some of that, like you're just trying to kind of like around here, you're trying to build a following. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to build your social media. You're trying to get noticed by, by anybody because you never know in Nashville, you never know who's walking into a bar. You Mm -hmm. never know who's, who's showing up somewhere. I played one writer's round, and one of the singers that was playing before me, she had a guest guitarist playing with her, and she was like, you know, some of you might recognize him as Quentin Gibson. He's, you know, Darius Rucker's lead guitar player. You know, and I was like, I am going to meet him. I'm going to make sure I say hello to Quentin. And then, because of social media, because you have that opportunity I sent him a little message later and he you know, sent me a message back and he was like, sorry, I didn't get a chance to see your whole set, but I really liked what I heard. You sounded great. And then he said, how do you know David Browning, which is my producer? And I was like, I've known David for 30 years. He's my producer. He's why I'm here. And he said, I've known David for 30 years. He's one of the first people I met when I came to Nashville. <laughs> and so now Quentin and I are friends now, but it's that kind of thing where you have to be ready for those opportunities to just say hello to you never know who's going to be out somewhere. And, um, you know, that's what's kind of fascinating, I think, about Nashville is there are tons of people who make a living who aren't Reba, who aren't Darius, who aren't Garth Brooks, who aren't these top names, but who are people like Quentin who play guitar for the big names who are other people that you would walk by, you would you would never recognize their names, but they're session musicians. They are 
people who write for the big names, you know. How much of a difference does it make that mostly I imagine that Nashville is full of everyday busloads of wide-eyed, young, gorgeous ingenues and, and boys in cowboy hats, young studs clutching their guitars, looking for fame. And they're, and they're just, there's busloads of them disgorging every day. And then there's at the other end of the bus station, there's lots of sad, tearful ingenues, a little less innocent that are going home. So how do you, as a more mature much less desperately seeking a career and riches. How do you as a songwriter navigate this scene of ingenues? Well, I think part of it is that I have some freedom, right? Because my whole life's not writing on it. So I am just enjoying every second that I'm ever in Nashville. It's it's just a blast because I'm... I'm enjoying it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, my whole life doesn't depend on this. I've already had great careers and other things. Um, I'm just enjoying that I get to be in Nashville doing this, playing for it. Like, I'm just enjoying enjoying meeting these other terrific songwriters who who maybe are going to be the next Carrie Underwood or something. Like, like I, I meet some of these songwriters and I'm like, oh, you have all the things. You're young and beautiful. And so it's kind of fun and exciting. And I think that was one of the things that I noticed in some of those first rounds, because it was, it's very intimidating as someone who's, you know, I played down there in September and you go, I'm 50, I'm going to be 50 in a couple of months. I am 50 now. And here are some 20 year olds, 22 year olds who are beautiful, right? They're gorgeous. Like you said, the guys are all fabulous. Everybody plays guitar way better than I do. And they all, they look the part and all this stuff. Um, the difference is I've got 20 years of theater stage presence stuff on some of them. And stories. I also have a lot of different <laughs> stories to tell. You know, the stories that I'm telling are a little different than the stories. And the stories I tell now are different than the stories I wrote when I was 20. Well, let's take a little musical break and listen to your latest track. This is called The Other other woman which you released at the end of january this year tell us first what it's about um this song is about a um a wife who gets a phone call from someone who's calling to let her know that you know she's the other woman and her husband's going to leave for her and the wife kind of lets her know that this is no surprise and that honey oh you're not that special you're just the other other woman. Kit in line, sweetheart. Um, so so I, I don't think there's many 22-year-olds writing that song. I hope not. But here it, <laughs> here it is. Meredith Shaw with the other other woman. Better off in your arms 
just me and you Cause you're the other Other woman You sound surprised It's too late to cry Yes, there's another Meredith Shaw with the other, other woman. Talk to me a little bit about the process of songwriting. Where does it start for you? Does it start with lyrics or with music or the inspiration of a particular event? What's your style of writing? It depends. Sometimes it is lyrics. Sometimes there's just a hook that rolls around in my head. Like for whiskey situation, it was very much a conversation I had with a friend where everything bad that was happening in the world and it was um all of our jobs were kind of messed up and so we had this other job that was drinking uh, you know what am I going to drink tonight and she's like well you said you had that bottle of wine I'm like I don't know you know they they sent us home for two more weeks but I think it's going to be longer I think it's gonna be a lot longer than that this feels like a whiskey situation <laughs> 
And I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a good line. I got to go write that down. Hold on. I got to go put that in my Google file. And I have a feeling I'm going to write a song about that. And so, you know, that's totally where that song came from was going, oh, uh, I just said something that I, I want to write a song around. And other times it's more of just messing around on my guitar and finding something. And I sometimes just play on my guitar and things just start flowing out. It was kind of interesting to actually work in, in Nashville with my co-writer, with, with David Browning, where it was, okay, we have an opportunity to pitch something. We need to come up with something. You know, that was one of the first times where it didn't kind of work like that. It, it was a job. It was like, we need to come up with something. By the end of the day, we need to have a song. Let's sit here and work on this. And, okay, well... What should it be about? Here's, you know, so we came up with this song called Denver, and that was a whole different way of approaching it, where usually it's, oh, I need some sort of divine inspiration. Well, if you're going to be a professional songwriter, you need to be able to to treat it more like a job. And so it's, it's I've been trying to make that shift of, okay, let's come up with an idea, and let's say we're going to bang something out today. I'm still not quite there yet, but it's <laughs> it, it's it's getting better. Do you try and write every day or life gets in the way? Life gets in the way a lot. I try. I'm like everyone. I try. Um, ideally, that would be the way. And I have to also not get in my way so much of, oh, this has to be Nashville recording worthy. Mm. Like sometimes you just need to write something because you want to say it. Sometimes here's just a song, I here's just something I want to say. And it's not going to be, maybe, maybe it's not going to be the best song I ever wrote. But that doesn't mean people aren't going to like it or that people aren't going to relate to it. So in terms of local gigs, what do you have coming up where people can come out and hear you? April 9th at Cooper's Landing, coming up from 2 to 5 in the afternoon. And that's kind of my next big thing that will be coming up. So I hope people will come up. We're hoping it will be another one of these gorgeous springtime days yeah. that people can get out. And so that will be – that's kind of the next big thing that's coming. And if people want to buy your music and support you financially, is there a way of doing that? I have music on iTunes. That's made the main way to buy it. Really, it's on Spotify and, and those places. Just stream it all the time. You know, come out – Come to the shows, tip well. That's always a good way to support your local artists. Uh, we appreciate that a lot. I have a song called Just the Tips, which if you go to my page, I will say that was one of one of my life highlights, right? So you talk about some of the differences with some of these younger artists. I had a moment playing a song that a Nashville crowd, a crowd of other songwriters, they had never heard before, but they were I had a whole bar singing along. <laughs> By the end of the song, and I was like, "This, this was the dream. I don't need to come back. This is everything that twenty-two-year-old me ever wanted. Was you know to have a Nashville bar sing along with one of my songs. <laughs> this, this is it. Um, so it's it's been a pretty amazing couple of years, and the fact that they want me to keep coming back is also just amazing. So I'm planning to go back. I've got a trip planned for May, and hoping to get down there another time this summer." 
Well, I'm sure that they will love you and I wish you all the best. I'm so proud. Every time I see something on Facebook that you've done, I just think, yay, go Meredith. Thank you. My guest has been singer-songwriter Meredith Shaw and you can hear her three released singles on Spotify and you can also catch her at Cooper's Landing on April the 9th from 2 till 5pm. Meredith, thanks for being such an inspiration and for taking time to chat this evening. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Diana. Let's go out today with a short clip from another of Meredith's songs. This is Whiskey Situation. Some nights we'd cry in our wine A little rosé to get through the night To drink away love that grew old A shot of something to make you bold But today no rum, no gin No butter, brandy could ever begin To drown the pain that keeps going longer I guess it's time to pour something stronger Cause this right here's a whiskey situation for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. to my guests, director Angela Howard and actor Dee Dee Farris from Columbia Entertainment Company and singer-songwriter Meredith Shaw. Thanks, as always, to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Bandcamp and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri.